every time God's word is proclaimed, it changes all of those within its hearing. No one ever remains unaffected by God's word. I read that statement many years ago now, and it has never left me. And even though R.C. Sproul made that statement, it is without question a biblical principle. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11 said this, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and make it bear fruit and sprout, furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. My friends, you will not be unaffected by today's message. Now, I do not say that arrogantly. I say that biblically. Either you will drink in God's truth and its nourishment will make you grow in grace, or you will receive it with indifference, consequently causing your spiritual heart to become just a little more calloused your eyes a little more clouded, and your hearing a little more dull. Either way, Sproul's statement rings true. No one remains unaffected by God's word. It is simply a matter of how it will affect you and your way of life. So, in the words of Jesus, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Those were Jesus' words time and time again. And when he speaks those words, we must pay attention. I'd like you to take a moment and think for a moment, what will my reaction be today? Turn to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and chapter 4. I want to be begin by reading the first three verses. Mark chapter 4. And he began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large, large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this. Let him who has ears to hear, hear, basically. Let's do a brief review for a moment. What is a parable? Well, the word parable literally means something placed alongside of something else, as in making a comparison or an illustration. It was a common method of teaching used in Jewish circles. And a parable takes something down to earth, something very observable, and places it alongside something very spiritual and supernatural in order for people to more easily grasp the spiritual truth involved. Do you get that? Everybody agree on that, right? So you could say that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Over the last couple of months, we've looked at a couple of those parables, and over time, we will look at more. In fact, I plan on interspersing a kingdom parable or two at various times throughout the year as the Spirit moves, eventually compiling them and releasing them as a collection called the Kingdom Parables. It's a bit of a different way to approach a sermon series, 
but we'll stretch it out over the course of time. Parables are very effective and powerful tools. Jesus used them on a regular basis in his teaching ministry. Mark chapter 4, if you're there, just skip down a little ways to verse 33. Verse 33, Mark writes, With many such parables he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. There was a time in Jesus' ministry when he began to teach exclusively in parables. He neutralized his enemies with them while simultaneously using them to make his teaching concrete and memorable, interesting and personally discoverable for those whose ears were tuned in spiritually. In other words, those who had ears to hear. That's an important concept to understand in interpreting parables because even though they were powerful illustration tools, Jesus employed them for more than just illustration. Parables also served, and you might bristle at this, to veil the truth. And you'd say, why would Jesus want to veil the truth? Well, he veiled the truth from those who were spiritually indifferent and antagonistic toward him. They literally, parables literally weeded out the truth seekers from those who were simply trying to trap him in everything that he said. You ever been in a situation like that before? I've spoken with certain people over the years who have a million and one questions about the controversial passages of Scripture and what the Bible really teaches, yet I can usually see right through what they're saying. I can see it in their eyes. I can hear it in their tone of voice that they're really not interested in learning the answer to those questions whatsoever. Like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, it's all a setup. They have it all figured out according to their own view and looking for a fight. And that's exactly why Jesus spoke almost exclusively in parables during the last half of his ministry. Matthew chapter 13. Hold your finger in Mark. Turn over to Matthew chapter 13 for a moment. And look at verse 10. Follow along as I read. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Those are kind of... Devastating words, aren't they? Very convicting words. 
especially to those of us who, are, who traffic in the word, who come here week after week, who listen to podcasts all week long or watch Christian television or go to Christian movies or on and on and on. We hear so much of the word, but are we applying it? Are we really hearing it? John chapter 9, Jesus said this also. This is right on the heels of healing a man born blind physically. And I think the healing of that man born blind not only was a great miracle in the sight of all, but it was a living illustration of something Jesus was trying to teach the Pharisees. In John chapter 9, verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we're not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. Parables are a two-edged sword. And like a double-edged sword, they thrust the seeds of truth into our hearts and call us to respond. Today's text is right smack in the middle of a parable. That's why I've taken the time to explain what a parable is. And as someone once said, hearing is an urgent business. And it is, isn't it? Especially for us. So if you have ears to hear, please hear. Back in Mark chapter 4, let's get into the text a bit. Mark 4, beginning in verse 3. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen... It was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Skip down to verse 14. The disciples wanted to know what this meant. And he said to them in verse 13, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sowed on the rocky places who when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary then. When affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. 
And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Here in this text, we're dealing with different responses to the word of God. Jesus illustrated the point that in this age of the kingdom, there would be numerous responses to the preaching of the word, of the truth. The key is to realize that the central issue here is not the condition of the seed. The seed is good. It's not the character of the sower that's in question here. There's no problem there because the sower is Christ. The key issue here is the condition of what? The soil. And Jesus identifies the soil as being the hearts of people. Yours and mine. The point Jesus drives home is that the response that a person has to the word of God depends not upon the condition of the seed or the sower, but it hinges on the condition of the heart of those who hear it. The listener. Please don't miss the fact that in every single case in this parable, the word was heard. The word was heard. No one missed it. In the first case, the response was big bagel, zero. Because Satan took it away before anything could happen to it. In verse 15, you see that. Basically, it fell on deaf ears, kind of. In the second case, the response was emotional. But it wasn't rooted in anything but feeling. They may have been touched by the message, but as soon as the emotions faded away, it had no sustaining power for them. When the going got tough, they therefore fell away. That's in verses 16 and 17. We probably all know people in those two categories. Maybe you're even one of them. But my primary concern today, however, is not with those two groups, but rather with the third group. I think there is a major jump between groups two and three. The first two groups are relatively easy to spot. They are the thrill seekers who are looking for a quick fix. They never truly face the real issue of sin and repentance. Their concern is for the experience of heaven on earth or what immediate benefit they can get from Christianity. When the trials come, and they do, they look for something else that will make them happy. People in these groups usually have no solid convictions, and because they don't stand for anything, guess what happens? They fall for everything. These in group three, however, are harder to pinpoint. Very difficult to pinpoint. In fact, it is precisely because of Jesus' mention of this particular group that I am convinced that we must all, every single one of us, me included, do a soil test upon ourselves. The church is full of people who are part of group three. These are men and women and teens alike who swear to the truth and even show a little foliage in their life their leaves tell you that there's potential fruit there, that everyone wonders when that fruit's going to blossom. With one foot in the church and the other still in the world, it is difficult to determine, to determine which side is winning. 
Now, if you are in that position, you need to know that you cannot stay there. You cannot remain there. You will eventually shrivel up and die spiritually if you stay there. Because worldliness is weedy soil. Worldliness is weedy soil. When the choking thorns of worldliness gets into your heart, spirituality loses its breath. Now, how many of you find yourselves grasping for spiritual air this morning? Don't raise your hand. It's just rhetorical. Jesus wants us to do a soil test. He says that the spiritual strangulation... Spiritual strangulation stems from the weeds of worldliness. And according to Jesus here in this parable, as we compare the three Gospels in which this parable is mentioned, by the way, it's Matthew 13, verse 22, Mark 4 here, and then Luke 8. We're going to look at all of those. There are three basic things that if we're not careful, will strangle us spiritually. So take good note. First of all, spiritual strangulation stems from the distraction of worldly worries. Spiritual strangulation stems from the distraction of worldly worries. Look at Mark chapter 4, verse 19, the first part of the verse. But the worries of the world come in. Okay? The worries of the world, Mark says. That's the first thing. If you turn over to Luke and chapter 8 and verse 14... Jesus says, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with the worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. In this parallel passage, Jesus says that the things that will spiritually strangle us, grab us when? What's it say in verse 14? As they go on their way. As they go on their way. It's everyday life, folks. Everyday life. That's interesting to me because it indicates that as we continually carry out our everyday routine worldly worries can take hold of us and they can strangle us and they can threaten us. Jesuit theologian John Courtney Murray calls it, quote, the atheism of distraction. Unquote. The atheism of distraction. People who are just too busy to worry about God at all. I ran across an article the other day that was very interesting to me. It's entitled, How to Witness to a Distracted World. The author begins, Most days I can hardly hear myself think. Feels like there are a million voices calling for my attention as long as I'm awake. Text messages, work emails, kids wanting a drink of water, looming deadlines, billboards, the sense of missing something important on social media, breaking news, Instagram, app notifications, Netflix, podcasts, music, a smartwatch telling me to stand up and move around. My mind is scattered and cloudy most of the time. Probably as a result, I often discover that I'm anxious or depressed or worried about something, but I can't remember what, let alone why. There's just too much going on. 
he says. So when these feelings come, the easiest and most efficient thing to do is unlock my phone. And then the dread mostly goes away for a little while. A shot of dopamine from Twitter keeps the anxiety away. He says the effect of all of this is that from the moment we get out of bed until we crash at night, life feels like a buzz of attention-grabbing technology and busyness for a lot of modern people. One of my great worries about this distraction is that it makes recognizing and repenting of sin hard to do. Why does he say that? When do we have time, he says, to quietly reflect on our day and prayerfully evaluate our actions and our words? You tell me when. It's amazing to me at that conference, no matter where I walked, no matter where I sat, even in my own seat, if I wasn't careful. Years ago, I used to go to all these conferences and never, ever, did I see this kind of a posture with a cell phone? Constantly. The answer, it says that we don't have time to quietly reflect. He says the answer used to be at night. Traditionally, the moments before we fall asleep have been some of the most convicting in life. You remember that when you used to go to bed at night and you used to rehearse the day in your head? something that somebody said, something that you heard. Sundays used to be a day of rest. You go home after the message, you think about it, you talk about it with your family. That night, maybe something that you heard came back to you, convicted you, or comforted you. So when you're stuck in bed with the lights off and nothing to distract you, your day comes rushing back. You remember the things you said, the things you left unsaid. You're alone with yourself, and that can be a terrifying thing. As the protagonist of Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises says, quote, it's awfully easy to be hard-boiled about everything in the daytime, but at night, it's quite another thing. At night, all the barriers we put up begin to crumble, and our own sin and need for Jesus is a bit easier to see. That's the way it used to be. Except that the night, he says, really isn't so quiet anymore, is it? With the growth of smartphones, we can have high-speed, high-definition, limitless content in rich colors to keep our minds preoccupied until the moment we fall asleep. Or perhaps we fall asleep binge-watching Netflix. The point is that in our contemporary world, we have rooted out every last second of silence and preoccupied ourselves to death. That's a big conviction to me. Someone who lays in bed at night and falls asleep to something on my iPad. The word Luke uses for worries here means that which divides the mind. It refers to those things which pulls us in different directions and distracts us. Usually it distracts us away from God. So how many of us are preoccupied with worries of the world today? Did you know that the English word worry actually comes from a German word which means to choke or to strangle? That's exactly what worrying does, isn't it? It mentally chokes us so that we cannot function. Someone once remarked that worry is a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. 
you see it like the Niagara Falls on both sides of your head. Everything falling into that worry. Here's my definition of worry. Worry is an unhealthy preoccupation with things which are beyond our control, yet well within the scope of our Father's care. Want to know the shortest route to spiritual ineffectiveness? The quickest way to a joyless existence? Start worrying. Whenever I think about this, this story comes rushing back to me, which I read many, many years ago. It's a true story. Happened over 70 years ago now. Yet even today, the irony of it, however, is still disturbing. A mural artist by the name of J.H. Zorthian read about a tiny boy who had been killed in traffic. His stomach churned as he thought of that ever happening to one of his three children. So his worry became an inescapable anxiety. The more he imagined such a tragedy, the more fearful he became. His effectiveness as an artist was put on hold as soon as he started running scared. At last, he surrendered to his obsession. Canceling his negotiations to purchase a large house in busy Pasadena, California, he began to seek a place where his children would be safe. His pursuit became so intense that he set aside all his other work while scheming and planning every possible means to protect his children from harm. He tried to imagine the presence of danger in everything. The location of the residence was critical. It must be sizable and it must be remote, so he bought 12 acres perched on a mountain at the end of a long, winding, narrow road. At each turn along the road, he posted signs, children at play. Before starting construction on the house itself, Zorthian personally built and fenced in a play yard for his three children. And he built it in such a way that it was absolutely impossible for a car to get within 50 feet of it. Next, the house. With meticulous care, he blended beauty and safety into the place. He put it into various shades of the designs that he had concentrated in the murals he had hanging in 42 public buildings in eastern cities. Only this time, his objective was more than colorful art. Most of all, it had to be safe and secure, and he made sure of that. Finally, the garage was to be built. Only one automobile ever drove into that garage. His, Zorthian's. He stood back and he surveyed every possible danger to his children. He could think of only one remaining hazard. He had to back out of the garage. He might in some hurried moment back over one of the children. So he immediately made plans for a protected turnaround and the contractor returned to set the forms for that additional area. But before the cement could be poured, all of a sudden, this downpour stopped the project in California, which is unheard of. It was the first rainfall in many weeks of the long West Coast drought. And if it had not rained that week, the concrete turnaround would have been completed and been in use by Sunday. That was February 9th, 1947, the day... His 18-month-old son, Tehran, squirmed away from his sister's grasp and ran behind the car as Zorthian drove it from the garage. Tragically, 
The child was killed instantly. All that worry, all that anxiety, all that energy and finances distracted and diverted and poured into an attempt to thwart something that was way beyond his control. Absolutely beyond his control. There are no absolute guarantees, my friends. None. No fail-safe plans, no perfectly reliable designs, no completely risk-free arrangements. Life refuses to be that neat and that clean. That's not to say that we shouldn't be responsible. That's not to say that we shouldn't keep our children secure, that we should do everything in our power to be safe. But you cross the line when everything in your entire life becomes drained into that cavern of anxiety. Because you know why? There's one who is in control. All the worrying in the world will never change what you and I cannot control. Worry is mental strangulation which results in spiritual asphyxiation. Think about the last obsession that you catered to. What were you worrying about? Your finances? How are you going to pay your bills? Food? What you're going to eat? Fashion? What you're going to wear? Your future? What tomorrow holds? Well, that kind of mental noose spells destruction for a fruitful Christian life. You know why? Because it paralyzes us into inactivity for the kingdom. Causes us to never step out in faith, never take risks for the Lord because of fear. And fear indicates a distrust in our Father's ability to take us through to the end. Because he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The bottom line is that the presence of worldly worries in the Christian's life indicates a distracted faith in his or her heart. And you know what the epitome text on this is? Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. I don't have to really read the whole thing to you, but just as a reminder, verse 25 says this in Matthew 6, For this reason I say to you, this is Jesus talking, do not be anxious or do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat, what you will drink, not for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then he goes on to repeat it and unpack each one of those things. Finances, food, fashion, future. But here's the deal. Jesus says it reveals three things. It reveals a lack of trust in the providence of your father, a lack of trust in the profession of your faith, and a lack of trust in the promise God gives us about our future. The worries of the world corrode the mind and Jesus says they strangle the soul. They are like weeds and thorns that grow up around your thoughts, robbing you of the joy of fruit-bearing Christian living. Thorns, you know, are a sign of neglect. Anybody keep flower gardens or garden around? Thorns are a sign of neglect, aren't they? They make a great hedge but a lousy crop, right? The thorns of worry are also a sign of neglect, neglecting the word, the word of God, which rejuvenates us and breathes life into us. 
To capitalize on a well-turned phrase, here's what I'll tell you. The word will keep you from the worries of the world or the worries of the world will keep you from the word. Philippians chapter 4. These are the kinds of verses that people used to memorize back in the day, right? Don't fret. Don't worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. It's a wonderful thing that happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. That's the message version. You probably didn't memorize that one. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Prophet Isaiah testifies in Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. He says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace. All who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Trust in the Lord always, verse 4 says, for the Lord God is our eternal rock. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Let him have all your worries and cares for he is always thinking about you and he's always watching everything that concerns you. Cast your cares upon you. Why? Because he cares for you. And by the way, the word Peter uses for cares in that text is the same word used by Jesus in Mark 4.19 for worries. Same exact word. What is your mind, what is my mind preoccupied with today? Are you worrying about worldly things that are out of your control? Is that worrying crippling your spiritual development by blocking out your vision of the one who controls your situation? When I was growing up, on my parents' wall was a laminated clipping from a newspaper that hung there for years as I grew up. And this is what it said on it. One small cloud a short distance away can totally shut out the sun. Billion times its size. Likewise, worries depress us not so much by their dimension as by their proximity. You understand what he's saying? Don't let the proximity of the worries of the world distract you and strangle your spirituality. Focus rather on the presence of Christ, who is a billion times those worries' size, right? God is able. Say it with me. God is able. Not only does spiritual strangulation stem from the distraction of worldly worries, but the second thing that Jesus points out in this parable is that spiritual strangulation stems from the deception of worldly riches. The deception of worldly riches. Back in Mark chapter 4, Verse 19 again, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, it says, will steal it, choke the word out. How often are we lured into this one? I mean, we think that if we just had more money or better transportation or a nicer home or a better wardrobe or a bigger church facility or whatever it is, you fill in the blank, 
that we'd be happier. That we'd be more productive for God even. What a joke that is. I so easily, as a pastor, get all caught up in that. At that conference, I'm sitting in a facility with 8,000 people singing to the Lord with the latest technology and the best musicians and the best voices. And I'm like, wow, if we only had this. No, we have this. (laughs) Yes, this is exactly what Jesus wants us to be content with. What he's put together. Ragtag bunch of people. Some of us can sing, some of us can't sing. Who cares? It's all a joyful noise to God. Amen. Yeah. Material wealth and possessions, they never were, nor will they ever be the basis for our fruitfulness. Remember that. More often, it's the noose that will strangle spiritual productivity. Case in point, the rich young ruler who approached Christ and asked what he should do to inherit eternal life, right? What stopped him from following Christ? If you look at Mark 10, 17 to 22, or Luke 18, 18 to 23, as he walked away, Jesus was grieved, it says, because he owned much property. Why? Jesus wasn't grieved that he owned much property. He was grieved that he walked away. And the reason he walked away was because he owned much property and he was extremely rich. And Jesus knew that. And Jesus said, knew exactly what he thought about that. And Jesus said, you know what? If you really want to follow me, go and sell everything you own. And the man walked away. Grieved. See, materialism is the delusion of spiritual deficiency. That's why Jesus characterized it as deceitful. It outwardly promises what it inwardly cannot deliver. What does the love and the pursuit of worldly riches really bring? What's it really bring? Opportunity. That's what you're thinking. What it really brings is a restless life of futility. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5 says this, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. So what's the basis of your contentment? What's the basis of mine? Be honest with yourself. Because we all fall into the snare of if I only had this or that. And it's varying degrees, but it's still the same principle, right? Whenever I start down that road, you know what happens to me? I end up miserable. Miserable. You want to know why? Because as a Christian, I must realize that I can never derive my ultimate joy from the things of this world. You can't. When we need a shot of happiness, this world is very ill-equipped to supply that need. When we attempt to drink contentment from the well of worldly riches, we find that we are always thirsty. Always thirsty. We should remember the words of Christ, that whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. True contentment comes from God, not gold. 
Beware, Jesus said, and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. That's Luke 12, 15. The thorns of worldly riches will choke the fruit of faith. The principle is very simple. You can't serve two masters, can you? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So where's our heart? Where's it rooted? See, because when sickness or old age finally gets the best of us, you know, when your chest falls down into your drawers and you whittle down to the bare truth of who you really are, what's going to be left? Ben Patterson wrote in The Grand Essentials this. He says, I have a theory about old age. I believe that when life has whittled us down, when joints have failed and skin is wrinkled and capillaries have clogged and hardened, what is left of us will be what we were all along in our essence. Now he explains. Exhibit A is a distant uncle who did nothing all his life but find new ways to make money. He spent his senile years comfortably drooling and babbling constantly about the money he had made. And when life whittles him down to his essence, all there was left was raw greed. That is what he had cultivated in a thousand little ways over his lifetime. Exhibit B, his wife's grandmother. When she died in her mid-80s, she had been senile for several years. What did she talk about? Ben writes, quote, The best example I can think of was when we asked her to pray before dinner. She would reach out and she would hold the hands of those sitting beside her. A broad, beatific smile would spread across her face. Her dim eyes would fill with tears as she looked up to heaven. And her chin would quiver as she poured out her love to Jesus. That was Edna in a nutshell. He says she loved Jesus and she loved people. She couldn't remember our names, but she couldn't keep her hands from patting us lovingly whenever we got near her. And then he concludes with this. When life whittled her down to her essence, all there was left was love for God and love for people. And by the way, isn't that what Jesus called, clarified as constituting the two greatest commandments? You know what that's called? You put this one in your memory banks. That's called the richness of being. Yale theologian Miroslav Volf says that there are two kinds of richness in life. There is the richness of having and the richness of being. We often seek the richness of having but what we really want in our souls is the richness of being. Because we want to be grateful and we want to be joyful. We want to be content and free from anxiety and generous. And we scramble after riches, richness of having because we think it will produce the richness of being. How many of you thought, well, if I, if I won the lottery, I'd give the money away. You giving the money away you have now? Right? It doesn't produce the richness of being. When life whittles you down to your essence, and it will sooner or later, me too, what's going to be left? Will it be love? 
the mature, ripened fruit of the Spirit? Or will it be the sharp, stiff thorns of greed still groping for your last breath? Spiritual strangulation, Jesus said, stems from the distraction of worldly worries, number one. Number two, the deception of worldly riches. And finally, spiritual strangulation stems from our unchecked desires for worldly pleasures. Mark chapter 4 again, verse 19. But the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Mark says the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. Desires, that word is a heavyweight word in this text. It means literally a violent craving. You know, it's the word for lust. That's what it is. And lust, by the way, is not just a word that connotes sexuality. Lust means having an insatiable passion for something. Luke 8.14 further identifies what Mark calls other things as the pleasures of this life. Does that mean that we can't desire pleasure in life? Well, not hardly, but an obsessive passion for pleasure is going to choke the word right out of your life. Proverbs 21, 17 says this, he who loves pleasure will become a poor man. Unquote. You know, there are at least two kinds of pleasure that fit into what Jesus refers to here, I think. Number one is those that are inherently wrong, like drug abuse, drunkenness, illicit sex, overindulgence, etc., etc. You, you, you know what those are, right? Those things that are inherently wrong. But the second thing is those that become wrong by an excessive devotion to it, to the neglect of God. I.e., sports, TV, entertainment, gaming, etc., etc., etc. None of those things are evil or wrong in and of themselves. But when we obsessively become devoted to that, to the neglect of God, that's when that pleasure does what Mark is talking about, what Jesus is talking about. Every one of us can likely identify that secret pleasure which we are tempted to obsessively indulge, knowing full well that it is killing us spiritually. What is it for you? When we become controlled by those desires, though not necessarily wrong in and of themselves, they can become idols, which leads us to spiritual poverty. Psalm 16, 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. That's the word of God, my friend. Jesus isn't saying that having a good time is wrong. There's nothing sinful about deriving pleasure from this life. But when it becomes the sole pursuit of your life, you've got trouble. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. This is not from the Father. This is from the world. Philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once warned that the day when Christianity and the world become friends, 
Christianity's done away with. If you want true pleasures, seek them in God's will, not in the world, right? The psalmist David wrote in Psalm 1611, in thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. See those two? Same psalm, written by the same man. They're juxtaposed like that for a reason. So that we would learn the truth of what this parable is teaching us. The question is, what kind of pleasures are we looking for? You know what? The son of the writer of those words, Solomon, often referred to as the wisest man in the history of time, went on a pursuit of unlimited selfish pleasure and found that it was empty. This is what he discovered in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was no profit under the sun. You see, the myth that having more will make you happy, huge delusion. Hedonism is a poisonous passion that turns men and women into twisted and dried up refuse. Preacher I know once vividly, vividly described someone who got caught up in the obsessive pursuit of other things. Said all he ever really wanted in his life was more. He wanted more money, so he parlayed inherited wealth into a billion-dollar pile of assets. He wanted more fame, so he broke into the Hollywood scene and soon became a filmmaker and star. He wanted more sensual pleasures, so he paid handsome sums to indulge his every sexual urge. He wanted more thrills, so he designed, built, and piloted the fastest aircraft in the world. He wanted more power, so he secretly dealt political favors so skillfully that two U.S. presidents became his pawns. All he ever wanted was more. He was absolutely convinced that more would bring him true satisfaction. But unfortunately, history shows otherwise because he concluded his life emaciated, colorless, sunken chest, fingernails in grotesque, inches-long corkscrews, rotting black teeth, tumors, Innumerable needle marks from his drug addiction, Howard Hughes died believing the myth of more. He died a billionaire junkie insane by all reasonable standards. Now, if you are in the midst or in the habit of allowing the other things of this life to destroy you, the riches of the world to deceive you, or the worries of life to distract you, we need to do a soil test. Pull up the weeds of worldliness, my friend, before they totally drain every ounce of spiritual moisture from your soul. Let me conclude with this. Legend has it that a man was lost in the desert. He's just dying for a drink of water. He stumbled upon an old shack, a ramshackled, windowless, roofless, weather-beaten old shack. 
And he looked about the place and found a little shade from the heat of the desert sun. As he glanced around, he saw a pump about 15 feet away, an old rusty water pump. He stumbled over to it and he grabbed the handle. He began to pump up and down, up and down, squeaking like crazy, but nothing came out of it. Disappointed, he staggered back and he noticed off to the side an old jug. And he looked at it and he wiped away the dirt and the dust and there was a message on it that read like this. You have to prime the pump with all the water in this jug. My friend, P.S., be sure you fill the jug again before you leave, unquote. So he popped the cork off out of the jug, and sure enough, there was water in it. It was almost full of water, and suddenly, he's faced with a decision. If he drank the water, he could live. Uh, but if he poured all the water into the rusty old pump, maybe it would yield fresh, cool water from down deep in the well, all the water that he wanted. So he studied the possibility of both options, and what should he do? Pour it into the old pump and take the chance on fresh, cool water to drink? Or ignore the message? Would he waste all the water on the hopes of those flimsy instructions written, no telling how long they were written ago? Reluctantly, he poured all the water into the pump and he grabbed the handle and he began to pump, pump, squeak, squeak, squeak. Still nothing came out. Squeak, 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 and then a little dribble began to come out. Then a small stream and then finally it gushed with water. And to his relief, fresh, cool water poured out of the rusty old pump and eagerly he filled the jug and he drank from it. He filled it another time and once again drank from its refreshing contents. And then he filled the jug for the next traveler and he filled it to the top, he popped the cork back on and he added this little note, believe me, it really works. <laughs> you have to give it all away before you can get anything back. Folks, before we will ever enjoy a thoroughly watered and flourishing spiritual life, before the soil of our soul will bear much fruit, we must sacrifice the thorns which cater to our immediate gratification. Because they're going to choke out that which will satisfy eternally. So hear the words of the Lord. But as for the seed that landed on the good soil, these are the ones who, after hearing the word, cling to it with an honest and good heart and bear fruit with steadfast endurance. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, God our Father, for teaching us through a parable. And I pray, Lord God, that those of us, myself included, had ears to hear it. I pray that your Holy Spirit would make it alive to us. And Lord, we're all at different levels of dealing with what we just heard today. I know I am. Give us the strength, Lord God, to deal with it. As my brother Scott keeps saying, we need to deal with it. Water us, Lord God. May your living water well up and provide fresh, cool, Spiritual moisture 
from now until the day that we meet you face to face. I pray it, Lord God, in the name of your son, Jesus, and for the sake of the kingdom. Amen.